0: But hey, for this weekend, um, this is a good weekend. We are actually concluding a series that we've been in called Unstoppable, okay? So for the last several weeks, we've been talking about um, the same thing in this series. And um, if you've been here at all um, in the last several weeks or even before that, because this is part of a broader conversation, you would have heard this and you probably already have this memorized. So let's just say it again. It's this, when the people of God become uncomfortable for the things of God, It unleashes the power of God, and we join the unstoppable movement of God. Okay, so today we conclude in this series, and Tony's going to talk more about that. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks, Steve. And uh, it's great to see you all this morning. Welcome to the Medina East Campus. As we are co- completing and finishing this conversation that we have actually been in for this entire fall semester. And so today, uh, this whole conversation comes to a close. And so as we uh, look to kind of end the series, I actually want to invite you, if you would, why don't you grab your Bible and let's just jump right into our conversation today. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 2. Okay, so if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab that and join me. Uh, we're going to flip to Matthew Chapter Two, Matthew Chapter Two. By the way, if you did not bring a Bible with you, uh, you can feel free to make use of uh, one of the Bibles that we have there in the chairs underneath you or in front of you. Turn to page six seventy six. In those Bibles, we're going to find Matthew Chapter Two. So feel free to use those. And then, of course, if you're a guest with us here today, if it's your first time at Grace Church, we do just want to really extend a very special welcome to you. Thank you so much for being our guest. Uh, we kind of an absolute privilege that you would spend some time with us. So thanks for being here. And I do just want to say too, if you don't have a Bible. Please feel free just to take one of ours and make that a gift from us to you. Uh, we would love it if you, if you had a Bible. so thanks for, for being here. So Matthew 2 is where we're going to go as we finish up this series as we kind of conclude this conversation uh, that we've been in together. Now as you're finding Matthew chapter 2, I thought maybe kind of a, uh, a, a good way to set up this, uh, today's talk and sort of the end of this series is by asking kind of a fun question. So I thought maybe I'd just have you consider this with me here uh, this morning. So here's a question I want you to consider for us to consider together, and it's this I want you to just think for a minute, what kind of planner are you? Okay, so as it relates to the, the, the way that you plan, what kind of person are you? What kind of planner are, uh, are you? And so I think this is a relevant question, not only uh, given what we're going to be talking about here today, but I think it's a relevant question also because uh, this seems like uh, this time of year a very normal part of our conversation is about our plans. And so I don't know about you, but I know for me, in, in most of my conversations, Uh, the default question tends to be this time of year, what are your holiday plans, right? You got any big plans? And many of you are making plans for this coming year or for this coming week. And so this tends to be a time that we talk about plans a lot. And not only that, uh, in a couple of weeks, we got New Year's, right? And so with New Year's, that's always a high planning time of year. And many people are making new goals and setting out plans for the up and coming year. So it's a very, very relevant question. So I just want you to consider what kind of planner are you? So three different categories to think about. Here's the first one. The first one I would call high planner, all right? So are you a high planner? And, of course, by high planner, what I mean is you're the person that maybe your motto would be something like this. Maybe would be like, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, right? You're the person that would say stuff like that. You're the person that would say, plan your work and work your plan. And, man, you like to have your ducks in a row. You like to know the plan. Uh, if you're going on vacation, you got to have a plan, and uh, you need to know what that is. In fact, for you, if this is you, if you're a high planner, probably the thing that causes you the most stress is when the plan doesn't work or when someone says there's been a change of plans that cre- creates great anxiety in you, right, if that happens. So that's the high planner. That's number one. Number two, it's kind of second. I would say it's mid-planner, right? So this is mid-range planner. This person, their, their, their motto would be hold on loosely, but don't let go. Right, kind of the 38 special motto. If any of you're into that, right? But uh, hold on, you know, hold on loosely. Don't let go. If you cling too tightly, you're going to lose control. So you know, you got to make plans. You make plans. You make plans. You're not anti-plan, but you're like, man, plans change. And so I'm not going to get too specific. I'm not going to get too tied to my plan. I got to be open and willing. But I'm going to make plans. I'm going to make plans. So that's that's the mid 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 range planner. And then, of course, the last one, I would call the low or maybe even the low to no planner, all right? And this is a person, their motto would be the best plan is no plan, right? And and you're the person that maybe would categorize yourself as spontaneous. You kind of like to go with the flow, uh, you, uh, you kind of are. Maybe for you, you would say things like, "Life is about the destination, not the ju- or about the journey, not the destination." And that's kind of the way that you would think. So high, mid, low, makes sense, right? All right. So let's just take a quick survey. Uh, just self-identify. How many of you, based on these three different categories, would categorize yourself as a high planner? Do we have any high planners in the room? All right. Very good. Thanks for admitting that. We are praying for you and for your families. I'd have to okay, second, mid planners. We got any mid planners in the room? All right, got a lot of mid planners here. Excellent, very, very good. Any low to no planners in the room? Man, we're glad you made it. We don't know how you got here, <laughs> but that's awesome. It's great to have you. Quick follow-up, Chris, has nothing to do with the message, but just out of curiosity, how many of you who are married are in a, in a marriage where one of you is this and one of you is this? Any of you? Okay, all right, that's, sure, that makes for interesting times. How many, okay, how many of you who are married, both of you are this? All right, nobody, or you're not willing to admit it. Right, you're nudging each other right now. At the 515, we actually had a fair amount of couples raise their hand last night to, at this question. And I reminded them, we do have marriage counseling here. So if you, that's, 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 that's tough stuff. But anyway, it's kind of a fun question, but the reason I bring it up is because it's actually a lead in to what we're gonna be talking about here uh, to, today and, and really for the rest of our time. That's it's this, uh, as we kind of conclude this series, what I wanna do is I wanna talk about, regardless of what kind of planner you are, I want to talk about um, your plans, and I want to talk about God's plan. And so I want to talk about your plans, I want to talk about God's plans, and I want to talk about how those two things work together. That's what I want to talk about today. Because here's, I'm just going to give you the bottom line of where we're going to go in today's conversation. I believe what we're going to find is this, and really in this whole series, this is what we've been saying. We've been saying, at God's plan, God's plan is unstoppable, uh, in other words, what we've been saying throughout this whole series is we've been saying that God has a plan. Uh, God has a plan for, human, uh, for humanity. He has a plan uh, that spans all of human history. And God's plan, God's plan for redemption, God's plan for salvation, God's plan for renewal of all things, that plan is not stoppable, right? I actually love uh, what Job says. So Job in the Old Testament he actually summarizes after he encounters God, he summarizes that encounter by saying to God this. He says, I know that you can do everything and that your plans are unstoppable. That's what Job says. And so the Bible tells us God has a plan and God's plan is unstoppable. His plan for humanity, his plan for rescue, the plan that he has over human history is an unstoppable plan. And because of that, and again, here's kind of the bottom line for, the, for all of today's conversation, it's this. What we're gonna talk about is this. We're gonna say that the best plan is to make God's plan your plan. So so God has an unstoppable plan. And, And really what we're saying is, because of that, regardless of what kind of planner you are, whether you're a high planner, a mid planner, a low planner, a no planner, the best plan that you could ever make in your life is to make God's plan your plan, is to orient your life around this plan, around God's plan, is to root your life, to root your plans, and the plan that God ultimately has for human history. That's what we're really gonna be talking about. And I believe, by the way, this little statement that we have up on the screen right here, I believe that this really summarizes everything uh, that we've been saying in this series. And so if you've been with us over the past several weeks, what we've been saying is, when the people of God make themselves uncomfortable for the things of God, that unleashes the power of God in and through your life, and you get to take part in the unstoppable movement of God, that's another way of saying this. God has an unstoppable plan. He has an unstoppable movement. And the best plan is that when we orient our life around his plan, that that is the best plan because we get to take part in his plan. And that's really what the whole thing is about. And so this is what we're gonna be unpacking a little bit today. And I believe, honestly, I believe that one of the greatest examples and one of the greatest demonstrations of this truth right here is actually located right in the Christmas story. I believe the Christmas story itself is a profound declaration and example of this reality right here. And so that's why I had you turn to Matthew chapter 2. And so we're going to look together at Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look a little bit at the Christmas story. So we're going to start off in verse 1. You guys have your Bibles open already to Matthew chapter 2. Now just a little bit of context before we start reading. Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2 is really the Christmas story. And so in Matthew chapter 1, we are told about the birth of Jesus. Uh, We're kind of told about the circumstances that surrounded that. And then when you get to chapter 2, what we're going to find is that the arrival of God's Messiah, the arrival of Jesus, uh, did not come without opposition. And so we're going to watch that play out in chapter 2. So let's go ahead and start. Let's look at verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. All right, so let's just pause there. And uh, let me just pause for a minute. And I want you to notice something because you know, here we have uh, the Christmas story. And my guess is if you're familiar with the Christmas story, you know all of these different things, the wise men, the magi, uh, you know King Herod, Bethlehem, all of those things are familiar to you. But I want you to notice one detail uh, that is mentioned here. I think it's easy to read right past and, and kind of miss the significance of. And that's this little detail right here. Notice the Bible says that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, He was born at a very specific time in history. And the time in which God brought Jesus into history was during the time of a guy named King Herod, a guy who was reigning, a guy named King Herod. Now, again, this might seem like, you know, kind of a small detail that we can read right past and we can continue reading. But I believe that this is not only a very significant detail, I believe this also would have been a very threatening detail. And the reason for that is because of who this guy was, who King Herod was, In fact, I actually just want to take a couple of minutes and I want to talk a little bit about the significance of this name. I want to talk a little bit about who this guy was because here's what I believe. I believe that when you begin to understand who this man was and you begin to understand that Jesus was born during the time in which this man was the king, I think that's deeply significant because it tells us something about the unstoppable plan of God through the Christmas story. So let's just talk a little bit about King Herod. So who was this guy? Well, this Herod that's mentioned here, he was the king of Judea during the time of Jesus' birth. That is, he would have been the king of the Jewish people or the king of the Jews. And this Herod that's talked about is actually a guy who's referred to as Herod the Great. Some of you maybe have heard his name before, Herod the Great. Now, kind of interesting, you might not know this, Herod actually wasn't so much a name as it was more like a title, in fact, there was many Herods. There was a bunch of different Herods. Uh, it was actually kind of like a family dynasty. And so, for example, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion, you might know that there was a Herod that was involved in that, but that's not the same Herod. This was a different Herod. This is Herod the Great. And uh, the thing about the Herod the Great was he was the king of Judea during the birth of Jesus. He was the king of the Jews. And the reason he was called Herod the Great was actually because of the great things that he was known for. And, and really, there's really three different ways um, that you can categorize his greatness. And so first off, the reason he was called Herod the Great is because he was known for his great ambition. All right, this guy Herod, he was greatly Ambitious. In fact, that's probably an understatement. If you go and you read any of the historical documents about King Herod, so for example, Josephus, this guy was a first century historian, um, he wrote a whole, uh, a whole like you know, section in his book called Antiquities about this guy, King Herod. And one of the things you see is Herod was greatly, greatly ambitious, extremely self-assertive person, right? He was the guy who would muscle his way into power, he would accrue for himself uh, incredible power and would do whatever it took to, to, to make that happen. Let's give you one example of this. Uh, we're actually told in, uh, in history, commentaries in history tell us that King Herod was the king of Judea, but that he actually wasn't rightfully supposed to be the king of Judea, but he muscled himself and forced himself into that role. And so without getting too deep into the history, uh, we're actually told that the, uh, the, the, the area of Judea was ruled by a group of people called the Hasmoneans. So there was a family dynasty of a group of people called the Hasmoneans. And they were the ones who were basically rightfully the ones to be the king of that area. But we're actually told in history that Herod saw an opportunity and he went to Rome and he appealed before the Roman Senate and he basically persuaded them to make him the king of Judea, he said, I'd be a better king, you should make me the king, and he persuaded them to do that, and so the Senate sent, carried uh, the great back to Judea with an army, and he took the kingdom by force. And so we're told this guy made himself the king, he went on, after he became the king of Judea, he went on to kill the Hasmonean kings that came before him, and all who were in leadership before him. So when I mean, you talk about a go-getter, this guy was very, very ambitious. He was a political strategist, in fact, he was a political genius. If if you could read through and just and, and just kind of see his political maneuvers and how he would position himself to gain power, I mean, this guy was just a genius. And so he was a, you know, Herod the Great, greatly ambitious. On top of that, second thing is this guy this guy was a great achiever. He's known for his great achievements, specifically as it related to his building projects. Um, it's actually really interesting when you when you look at uh, the area of Jerusalem and surrounding there are still a bunch of ancient ruins that you can go and look at uh, that are attributed to Herod the Great. He was actually really interested in perpetuating a name for himself in history uh, through building projects. So he just built these tremendous, magnificent, um, just different you know, feats of architecture and just incredible stuff. So I'll just give you a couple examples. He actually rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, um, and he built it to just an amazing scale uh, the temple in Jerusalem underneath King Herod was the size of an American city block by the time he was done. Uh, he built um, coliseums in Jerusalem, entertainment centers in Jerusalem. Uh, he built something called a hippodrome. You guys ever hear of a hippodrome before? A hippodrome is kind of like a racetrack. I'll actually show you a picture. This is the hippodrome. You can see this in Jerusalem. You can still go visit this to this day. It's something that he built. He built several different palaces for himself and maybe kind of the pinnacle of his, uh, of his building projects was Herod actually built a, 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 a kind of a, a palace for himself. It's called the Herodian. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Herodian. This is a picture of it. It's actually three miles outside of, Jerusalem, outside of Bethlehem. You can go and visit this to this day. And basically, this is, a, you can see, it's kind of like one giant mountain. And if you get an aerial perspective, you can see it's kind of like a complex. And so his palace would have been in here there would have been a bunch of different stuff. Herod is buried here. Herod the Great is buried in this place. But the interesting thing about the Herodian is the way that he built this was actually through heavy taxation on the people and on the backs of slaves. And so he actually made this mountain. He, he pulled together two hills. He had slaves pull together these two hills. Basically, guy moved mountains to make a palace for himself. And uh, historians tell us the reason he did that was to display his dominance over Mother Nature And the other reason was to display his dominance over God. And so he purposely built the Herodian higher than the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And that was a way of saying that he was even greater than God himself. So you get the idea, right? This guy was, man, he was very, very, very ambitious. He was a high achiever. He was deeply narcissistic. But probably the most prominent feature about Herod, probably the most outstanding feature about him was this, though, is that he also was greatly paranoid. Greatly paranoid. In fact, I, I thought this was real fascinating. In all of the history books that I read on this guy, this was the feature about him that was the most noted: was that Herod was a, I mean, just a deeply, hopelessly suspicious person. And anyone who was in proximity to this guy uh, that he felt threatened by, and he would be very, very, very paranoid. And so he would actually go to very drastic measures and even barbaric measures to try to eradicate anyone who opposed him or stood against him or he felt was conspiring against him. I like the way one commentator said it. One commentator said it this way. It said he was preoccupied with immortal glory, and he would actively fight against anyone that stood in the way of that objective. And so basically, he wanted to secure a name for himself. He wanted his name to be great, and if anything threatened that, he would go to great lengths to silence that person. So just a couple examples of this they give you a ton But uh, one example would be, Herod actually had 10 wives, and the reason he had 10 wives is because he wanted to uh, kind of secure a legacy. He wanted to develop a family name and a kingdom that would endure forever. So he had 10 wives, and we're told that one of his wives, um, her her brother was the high priest, and Herod was deeply threatened by this guy, and so he invited his brother-in-law to go swimming with him one day at the beach, and when they were swimming... Uh, when his brother-in-law was out in the water, he had a couple of his, his officials go out in the water and drown him. And so they held his brother-in-law under until he drowned to death. And then afterwards, they had the funeral and all this kind of thing. Well, then his wife was upset with him, you know, because you know, he killed his brother and stuff. And so, so what he did was he killed her. And we're, we, we know that Herod had several children, but we know that he killed at least three of his own sons because he was suspicious that they were conspiring again. I mean, you're talking about a guy who is deeply paranoid, and will go to any length to silence anything that's gonna get in the way of his greatness. Um, I thought maybe, again, one of the most noteworthy stories was uh, when Herod was on his deathbed, when this guy was on his deathbed, he, he knew that his death was imminent. He knew it was gonna happen, and so he commanded his officials to go out into Jerusalem and really to kind of gather, gather the most distinguished men in Jerusalem, the most highly respected men in Jerusalem, and have them arrested. And then he said, on the day that I die, I want you to kill all of these highly distinguished men. And here was his reasoning. He said, because I don't want anybody not mourning the day that I die. That just shows you, man, the depths of this guy's narcissism, paranoia, and power. Very, very, very powerful, powerful person. All right. Now, now here's the thing. If you get your mind around that, that's Herod the Great. Now, go back to our passage. Now, notice this. The Bible says that when God brings Jesus into the world, he brings him into a time and space in history where this is the guy that's in charge, Herod the Great, right? Greatly ambitious, great achiever, greatly paranoid. And notice what it says. It says, so the magi from the east, these are the wise men, came to Jerusalem and they asked, notice this question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. All right, so, so these magi come from, from the east and they come to King Herod, who is the king of the Jews, and they ask him the question, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? All right, so let's just do a little bit of class participation here. Quick vote, thumbs up, thumbs down, all right? Let me just ask you, how do you think Herod, knowing what you know about Herod, how do you think he felt about this announcement of the birth of the new king? How do you guys think he felt? Thumbs up, thumbs up, okay, yeah. I'm going with thumbs down on this one. I'm thinking probably not too good. He probably didn't feel too good about this news. By the way, just a a quick piece of advice. You don't come to the king of the Jews and ask him where the real king of the Jews is. You don't do that, right? These guys are called the wise men, but that's not too wise, you know, man. It's not very wise. Don't do that. Anyway, so Herod, how do you feel about it? Probably not too good. In fact, if you look at the very next verse, it's gonna tell us that very thing. Look what it says in verse three. When King Herod heard this, he was, say it with me, he was disturbed. This is an understatement. Knowing what you know about Herod, that makes a lot of sense, right? He was disturbed. Some of you have translations that says greatly troubled. He was greatly troubled. It's actually interesting. The word's very, very strong in the Greek language. It literally means to cause inward commotion and turmoil. Basically, the idea is he was full of anxiety. Later, we're going to see that he was furious. And this is not uncharacteristic of Herod. Right? He was disturbed. And then notice what the Bible says too. It says, "In all of Jerusalem with him. And that's kind of fascinating. right? Some of you might be thinking, why was the whole city disturbed when they heard about the birth of Jesus? Well, I, I think we can only speculate. I don't really know because the Bible doesn't tell us. But my speculation is this. I think the reason all of Jerusalem was disturbed is because Herod was disturbed. And when Herod is disturbed, people know when Herod is disturbed, people die. And my guess is everyone was probably um, a little bit on edge because of Herod. Right? So notice what happens next. The Bible says that after Herod hears this news, he's disturbed and he begins to immediately implement a plan. Dude starts planning. And so look what happens. The Bible says he called together a meeting with the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Messiah was born. And now let me just point this out. This is actually a pretty significant detail. The Bible says that when Herod hears that the real king of the Jews has been born. The first thing he does is he calls a meeting and he calls a meeting with the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Now, why these guys? Why did he call these people together? Well, the reason is this. These two groups of people would have been basically like Old Testament scholars. That's what they would have been like. And the reason that's significant, which you might not know, is that the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, contains within it a prophecy, And it basically says the Old Testament uh, foreshadows and prophesies that one day there's going to be a Messiah who is going to come. He is going to be born a king in Bethlehem and he is going to establish a kingdom that will never end. That's what the Old Testament teaches and that is what Jewish people believed and continue to believe to this day. Is that there is going to be one that is going to come. There's going to be a Messiah. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And he is going to establish a kingdom that is never going to end, is never going to, it's going to be an eternal kingdom. And so Herod knew that. Herod knew that that's what the Jews believed. And so he went to the Old Testament scholars and he said, I've been told that the king of the Jews has been born. Can you please tell me where he is? And look what they say. I think this is really interesting. Verse five, in Bethlehem, they said, in Judea. They don't even hesitate. Like, oh yeah, yeah, we know about the Messiah. He's gonna be born in Bethlehem. And here's why they know that. They said, for this is what the prophet said. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, this is really interesting, and I just don't want you to miss this, all right? (laughs) Notice that these chief priests and and these teachers of the law, that when when Pharaoh asked, I'm sorry, when Herod asked them, when he says, Man, where is this this king going to be born? They know exactly where he's going to be born. And the reason is because God said so all the way back in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. That's what they're quoting from right here. Now, here's what I think is so significant. I just don't want you to miss the significance of this. Micah, that book that they're quoting, was written approximately 700 years before the birth of Jesus. So 700 to 750 B.C. is when the book of Micah was written. Here's what I want you to catch because this is just, this is incredible to me. Herod comes to these guys and he says, what was God's plan again? What was it that God said he was gonna do? Where was his king gonna be born? And they said, oh yeah, God made a promise that his king would be born in Bethlehem and that he would establish a kingdom that would last forever. And Herod hears this knowing that that's what God said he was gonna do, that that was God's plan, that's what he promised, that's what he wrote down all the way back in Micah, and yet somewhere in Herod's mind, we're going to see this, he thinks he can stop it. He's like, I know God said that 700 years ago. He's going to bring his king into Bethlehem and then, you know, this whole thing. But somewhere in Herod's warped and twisted mind, he thought, I can stop the plan that God has put into motion hundreds of years, all the way back from even the beginning. Many of you guys know how the story goes. If you've read the Christmas story, I'll summarize for you a little bit. What happens next is the wise men go down. Uh, Herod goes to the wise men and he says to them, um, hey, can you guys go please find the king of the, go find the Messiah, go find Jesus? He says, because I wanna worship him too. And of course, we all know that was an absolute lie. Herod's intent from the very beginning was to kill Jesus. That's what he wanted to do from the very beginning. And so the Bible says that the wise men go down to Bethlehem, they find Jesus, just like they had anticipated they would, they worship him. And then the Bible says the wise men prepare to go back to, to, uh, to King Herod. And as they prepare to go back, God stops them. And he warns them in a dream. And he says, don't go back to Herod. Herod wants to try to kill the children and kill, kill Jesus. And he says, so you need to go home a different way. And so they do. And then you notice what the Bible says. If you bounce down to verse 16, look what the Bible says. It says, when Herod realized that they had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. So he goes from troubled to furious, not out of character for him, and he gave orders. Now, now notice this. Just let the full weight of this set, and this is huge, deeply barbaric, atrocious thing. When Herod heard this, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. I mean, just... I mean, you know, this is a detail in the Christmas story we can read and kind of blow past, or maybe you're familiar with, but man, you think about that. That's how terrible that must have been. It's absolutely, absolutely barbaric. And, and man, here's Herod, so narcissistic, so deeply concerned and anxious about controlling the outcome of the scenario that he goes to even lengths, to, like these brutal lengths, to try to stop the plan that God had put in place you guys might know how the story ends. What happens is by the end of chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, the Bible says Herod dies. Herod dies. And after King Herod dies, the Bible says that Jesus and his family moved to Nazareth. And if you know the story, it basically goes like this. Jesus grows up, grows up in the house of 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 a carpenter, grows up in relative obscurity, right? He grows to be a man. He gets baptized. The Holy Spirit comes upon him and he is empowered by the Holy Spirit to begin his ministry. He calls disciples to himself and he begins declaring his kingdom. He starts telling people, I have come to establish a kingdom and my kingdom will have no end. And people didn't like that message. In fact, they crucified him because of that message because they tried to stop it. But little did they know that when they crucified Jesus, they thought they were stopping his plan. That, that was part of God's plan all along. And God's plan is unstoppable. And so Jesus went on to die for the sins of humanity. Three days later, he rose from the dead, came back to his disciples, and he said to his disciples, I want you to go and make disciples, and this thing is gonna go global. I want you to take it to all nations. And the Bible says that the church was initiated, and just like Jesus promised, Jesus would launch his church, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Jesus said, I'm going to establish a kingdom, and that kingdom is going to have no end. And here's the crazy thing. Here we are, 2,000 years after this story, and we are reading it, and the Herods of the world are gone, and Rome is gone, and kingdoms have come and have gone and risen and have fallen, and here we are, and the kingdom of Jesus Christ continues to reign in the hearts and minds of people all throughout the world. What is all that saying? Here's what it's saying God's plan is utterly unstoppable, it cannot be stopped. If God said it's gonna happen, It's gonna happen. If God said it's gonna play out, if he said I have a rescue plan for humanity, it is going to be accomplished exactly the way that he said. And one of the things I think is so interesting about about this story, about the Christmas story, is that if you think about it, it's really the story of two kings, isn't it? And here you have two kings. You have King Jesus and you have King Herod, and they couldn't be more different. You have King Herod, who is full of self-ambition, willing to sacrifice the lives of others for the greatness of his own name. And you have King Jesus, a humble servant who comes to sacrifice himself for the lives of many. Very different. You have Herod, who is rich and wealthy and powerful from a worldly vantage point, right? You got King Jesus, who from a worldly vantage point is poor and obscure and is easily overlooked. And yet, this is God's king. And this is his plan. And it cannot be stopped. You know, one of of the most ironic things is, I think, about this whole story You know what Herod wanted to be known for the most? He wanted his name to be made great throughout all of history. He wanted his name to be elevated above all others. He wanted to be known for his incredible building projects and be known for being just the most dominant king of all time. But you know what Herod's most known for? All of his building projects are ancient rubble. You can go visit them, but they're basically trashed by this point. They're turning into dust. And the thing that he's most known for, I find this so interesting, the thing he's most, if you were to stop anyone on the street and ask him, do you know who King, who Herod the Great is? Some people might know a little bit about him, but most people know King Herod because of his little part in the story of King Jesus. And Herod's a footnote. He lives in the shadow of a greater name, of the name of Christ. And most people know King Herod because of his footnote in the Christmas story. See, and here's what I believe. I believe this statement God's kingdom is unstoppable. God's plan is unstoppable. I believe that that's more than a statement. I believe it's also an invitation. I think it's an invitation. I think it invites us into three different things, and here they are. Number one, I think the fact that God's plan is unstoppable invites all of us in this room to take confidence in this unstoppable plan. I think, man, when you look at the Christmas story and you look at God's plan and how it can't be stopped, I think it's an invitation to us to trust in God's plan take great confidence in his unstoppable plan. Listen, the news that God has an unstoppable plan can either be really good news to you or it can be really threatening news to you. And it really all depends on how you're building your life. And if you, if you are a person who is currently building your life completely around your ambitions and your plans, around <laughs> your desires and your priorities, this can be a very threatening statement right here because God has an unstoppable plan. But if you're a person who is living your life and building your life around Jesus and the things of Jesus and the things that matter to him, this is very good news. It's very good news because what it's telling us is even when things look like all odds are against you, God's plan is unstoppable. And we see this time and time again. And so the best plan is to make God's plan your plan. I don't know if you noticed, but one of the things I love about this story is if you you ever read Matthew chapter one and Matthew chapter two, you will notice that five times in two short chapters, Matthew points out the reason this happened was to fulfill what the prophet said in the Old Testament. Five times in two chapters. He quotes from Isaiah, he quotes from Hosea, he quotes from Jeremiah, he quotes from Micah. And he says in these different occasions, this event happened because God said it was going to happen through his prophet hundreds of years ago. And what is all that saying? I think what Matthew is pointing out to us is this. If God makes a promise, he's going to keep it. And if God said he's going to do something, he's going to accomplish it. And even though it might look like everything is going against it, it is unstoppable. And because of that, you can take great confidence in that. You can, you can trust in his plan, even when it looks like all odds Are against you. I was thinking about this this week, and I was remembering um, there was a a really cool kind of modern day parable I heard. uh, A very famous pastor uh, out in Minnesota. He was telling this story. I thought it was really helpful. And basically, he told the story of um, of uh, a father and a son. This is a father and had a small boy, and he took his son to see a blacksmith for the very first time. So his son had never seen a blacksmith. And they had went to this uh, you know whatever place it was, and they walked into the barn where the blacksmith was. And this little boy saw the blacksmith for the first time and he was utterly in awe. And and there he saw, you know, sitting on this stool behind an anvil, he saw this giant just bear of a man. I mean, just massive, burly, strong man. And, And when he came in, he had this hammer. And I mean, this thing was just massive, like steel head and long handle. And he was pounding this thing down on the anvil, hitting a piece of, heated metal trying to flatten it, and he just, with each swing, it just made the most incredible, and clang, clang, and the boy walked in, and he saw it, and he was just overwhelmed, and at one point, the blacksmith paused to catch his breath, and he saw the boy. kind of spotted the boy standing by the door, and the boy made eye contact with the blacksmith and was dumbfounded, and the boy went on to point, and he pointed at the anvil, the giant anvil, and he looked at the blacksmith, and he said, Aren't you afraid you're going to break that? And the blacksmith kind of smiled and looked down at the anvil and chuckled. And he said to the boy, he said, son, this anvil is older than I even know. He said, son, this anvil my father used and his father's father used and his father's father's father used, this has been in my family longer than I even know. He said, son, a hundred hammers have been broken on this anvil. He said, so no, I'm not afraid that I'm going to break it. Listen, here's what I'm saying. God's plan revealed to us in His Word. The book that you're holding right now, the Bible you're holding, God's plan revealed to us in His Word is an anvil that a hundred hammers have been broken on. A hundred human plans have been broken on this plan. A hundred Herods, a hundred Pharaohs, a hundred kings have been broken on this plan, right? A hundred Romes. A 100 kingdoms of this world have been broken on this plan and will continue to be broken on this plan because it's utterly unstoppable. It's an anvil that will not be broken. And that means we can take great confidence in it. We can trust in his plan. It won't be stopped. And I think that leads to the second thing. And here's the second thing. I, I believe what this does is it invites us to take confidence in his plan. I think it invites us to orient our lives around his plan. We just said it a minute ago. The best plan is to make God's plan your plan. This whole series, I believe, has been us trying to talk about how to do this. How do you practically orient your life around his plan? So we've been talking about for the past several weeks. We've been saying things like um, God's plan is that he wanted to launch his church and that the church is, is God's powerful mechanism in the world. It's the hope of the world. God's plan is to unleash disciples who make disciples. God's plan is that you would know him and follow him and make his priorities your priorities. We talked about that in the past. So if you missed any of those previous weeks, by the way, I would encourage you to listen to those. The best plan though is this is to build your life, organize your life, orient your life around the things that matter to God. Because when the people of God make themselves uncomfortable for the things that matter to God, it unleashes his power in and through you and you get to take part in this unstoppable plan. That is the best plan. That is regardless of what kind of planner you are, hands down the best plan. And unfortunately, I think sometimes uh, for those of us who follow Jesus, we inadvertently get this in the wrong. We get this the wrong way. And a lot of times what we'll do is we'll make our plans and we'll make our priorities and we'll set those things out and then we'll come to God and we'll say, God, here's my plan and here's what I wanna do and so would you please bless that? And I think sometimes that's just so backwards. I think maybe we ought we to take into account that maybe we should pray the way Jesus has called us to, which is this, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, what's your plan? How can I join what you're doing? How can I be part of what you're accomplishing in this world? I think Proverbs says it well, uh, just a couple verses to consider. Proverbs 16, 3, commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. Proverbs 16, 9, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. You notice a, a theme here, right? And the theme is God's plans prevail, And whenever we align ourselves to God's plan, we get to be part of what God is accomplishing in this world. It's the best plan you could make. And that leads me to this last thing, and this is this. I think the last thing is this is an invitation to all of us to rest. To rest in his unstoppable plan. We can trust it. We can orient our lives around it. It's the smartest thing you can do. And then it's an invitation to rest. You can rest in his unstoppable plan knowing that even when it looks like all odds are against you, even when it looks like everything is crumbling around you, I mean, you look at the Christmas story. It did not look like King Jesus was going to win, and yet he does every time, and we can rest in that. It's interesting. If you look at Herod in this story, what you see is you see a man that's full of anxiety. You see a man that's full of fear. You see a man that's full of a need to control the outcome. And listen, for some of you this morning, if you're being real honest, you can relate to that. You find yourself full of anxiety and full of fear, and it's rooted in this desire to feel the need to control the outcome. And I'm just telling you, this is an invitation to trust him and to rest in him. That if you build your life around the things that matter to God, you can rest in that. You can rest in that. You can find peace in that. You can find hope in that, because God's plan is an unstoppable plan. listen, for some of you, maybe you're here this morning And you're a person that's not a follower of Jesus. You're investigating Jesus here today. And if that's the case, by the way, we're so thankful that you're here, that you'd let us be part of that investigation. But maybe for you, maybe this morning, maybe you need to surrender to Jesus. Maybe you need to surrender your life and give your life to King Christ because he is a good king who's come to serve you and he loves you and he died for you. His plan is unstoppable and he wants to invite you into that, that you might find life. Maybe you've lived life long enough to know that your plan doesn't work. Maybe you've experienced enough to know that your plans have only led to greater hurt, frustration, anxiety, anger, regrets. And maybe it's time to surrender your life to the real king. Orient your life around him and follow him. He's a good king and I, I would beg you to do it because I think he loves you enough that he died for you and he came to you. So you can do that. Even this morning, you can do that. You can talk to God between your heart and his. Surrender your life to him. Give your life to Christ. Let's pray together. Well, God, I just want to say thank you that your plan's unstoppable. It is. It's just not going to be stopped. And because of that, it's not you know, that can be threatening because it's kind of like standing in front of a freight train. If, if we feel like we want to stop it, um, it's probably not going to go too well. But, uh, but Lord, I know that it's also an invitation. It's an invitation for us to hop on board. It's an invitation for us to take part in what you're trying to accomplish in this world. So I thank you, God, that you are a God, that, um, that your plans can't be thwarted, and that you're a God who loves us enough that you've invited us into it. And you know, one, one of the most heartbreaking things about this story is that, uh, that Jesus, even though Herod was so vehemently opposed to you, you came to die for him, and forgiveness was available to him as well through you. Uh, but he was just unwilling to receive that, and so Father, I pray that you would help us not to commit the same, uh, you know, the same, the, the same act as, as Herod. That you know we would make the mistake of uh, of trying to pit ourselves against you. And I pray, Jesus, that we would surrender our lives, make our lives about following you. I pray that you'd help us to trust your plan for those of us who follow you. I pray that you would help us to orient our lives around the things that matter to you. Like you said in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom and all other things will be added. And I pray that we'd find rest in that plan as well. And God, for the person that's in the room that's investigating you, maybe you're working in their heart and maybe they've lived long enough to know that... um, that their plans and the way they've organized their life has led to a place that, man, they're just, they recognize that it's not working. And so I pray, Jesus, that you would help them to surrender to you, to find you to be good, to find you to be king. You're a good king, you're a good God. We thank you so much for this, God. I ask that you would help us to be blessed for having heard what we heard. I pray that we'd live differently as a result of that. We pray these things in Jesus' name.